And this morning we're looking at Matthew chapter 26, uh, verses 57 through 68. So Matthew 26, beginning at verse 57. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. And those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last... Two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer anything or do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath. By the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. And they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with their palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His Word. O Lord God in heaven, we do praise You and thank You for, again, for this day, for this opportunity, this day of worship, to be able to gather together to study Your Word, and to hear Your Word, and to be fed by Your Word. And we thank You for this bread of life that You now give. And we ask, Father, that truly as Your Word goes forth in the power of the Spirit, we pray that it would find truly within our hearts that rich, fertile soil that will bring about a great and abundant fruit for Your glory. Lord, we pray for Your blessing to be upon this Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a lot of talk these days of of justice right? everyone wants justice for some perceived wrongs that they have suffered and whether those wrongs were suffered uh, in the present time or even perhaps far back in the past we hear cries for social justice to address the grievances of, of slavery and Economic disparity, racism, sexism, and a whole slew of other isms. There are even calls for climate justice to combat the abuses that industrialization has brought on the earth 
and the environment. Everyone wants justice. Or do they? Certainly, justice is a worthy goal. Indeed, it's a biblical principle to pursue justice in all things, to see wrongs made right, and for wrongdoers to receive the consequences due to them for their wrongs. But there are several problems with these popular cries for justice that we hear today. And one key problem is, of course, determining who has the power and the authority to determine what's right and what's wrong. Right? You need to know what's right and what's wrong so that uh, justice can be rightly administered. Well, in a society that has greatly rejected God's moral law and even any absolute standard of right and wrong, determining what's right and what's wrong is left up to the individual or to a group of individuals who have the loudest voices. But true justice can't prevail in such a situation. You see, because the goalposts keep moving depending on the, uh, the, the sway of, of uh, the mood of the people. Of course, the other problem is that if people held to God's standard of justice, well, they would quickly find out that they fall well short of that justice. And so when they cry out to the Lord for justice... Well, they actually will be calling for God's just judgment to fall upon them because they've sinned against Him. But there's another problem with this popular pursuit of justice. It really has nothing to do with justice at all. There really is no concern for what is truly right, but only that which is comfortable and satisfying to oneself. The impact of this is that calls for justice are merely calls for for vengeance and revenge born out of envy and greed. It's not about right and wrong, but it's about what I don't have and what you do have and my desire to have what you have. Well, this is the kind of charade of justice that is the outward appearance of seeking what's right, but inwardly being driven by one's own desires. It's a farce. And again, it really has nothing to do with justice at all. Well, this is precisely what we see in our passage this morning. As Jesus is now placed on trial before the uh, religious leaders, But seeking what's right is really the furthest thing from their hearts and minds because they only desire one thing, and that is to destroy Jesus, to get Him out of their way. And as we'll see, they carry out this charade of justice in order to meet meet that desire. So they're having a trial. When you think of having a trial, you're seeking justice. But again, they're not seeking justice here. They're seeking their own selfish desires to destroy Jesus. Well, this becomes a reminder to us of a few things. First, we'll see that it continues to show us. 
really the depths of the humiliation that Jesus, our Savior, endured on our behalf. And it also serves to remind us that true justice will not always be found in the courts of men, but it will always be found. And it will be found in the courtroom of the Lord God on the last great day when those who pervert justice will receive their due. On verse 57, after Jesus had been arrested in the garden, he's brought to Caiaphas the high priest uh, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. And then in verse 59 we read that the chief priests, the elders, and all the council were present to carry out this trial. Well, the council described here is the Jewish Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, we've considered this before, that was the highest court of the Jews. And they mostly dealt with uh, religious matters, uh, which of course for the Jews pretty much everything uh, turned out to be a religious matter. But this was one of the court. This was the court that the the Romans uh, allowed to uh, the Jews to still have some uh, local authority, and so this was their highest court. The Sanhedrin consisted of seventy members, with representation from uh, from the priestly class, from uh, from the scribes and the teachers of the law. Oftentimes, they would be the Levites, and uh, and also the elders, who would represent the. Um, the tribes and the various family groups. Well, these would serve as the jury, in this case, against Jesus. And so, showing us right away that uh, there'd be no justice found here for the Son of God. I mean, you consider before the various confrontations that Jesus has had with these very same religious leaders, we know, again, that envy and jealousy were their driving factors and was behind their desire to see Jesus destroyed because they realized that Jesus was gaining a great influence among the people. And as the more Jesus' influence that he gained, well, then the less influence these religious leaders had over them. And of course, thrown in with that was how Jesus often exposed their hypocrisy before the people. In fact, just in the previous few days before this, Jesus had publicly embarrassed them. Uh, First by cleansing the temple and calling it a den of thieves, because many of the Sanhedrin members were supported by the income of the markets that were there in the temple courts. And then secondly, Jesus had silenced them in that three-pronged attack on that long Tuesday when they came to him with one question after another, trying to ensnare Jesus in his own words. But each time Jesus turned the tables on them, and he silenced them and put them on the spot. Well, this group of leaders were conniving. They were vengeful and and thirsting for blood. And so clearly for Jesus, there would be no fair trial. In fact, so bent on seeking revenge on Jesus, that they even disregarded several of their own legal requirements. According to Jewish law, no capital case, that is a case where the death penalty uh, was being sought, that no such case was to be tried at night. Well, here this trial, they're seeking to put Jesus to to death. It's taking place anywhere between 1 and and 3 a.m., 
And secondly, it was forbidden for a hearing in a capital case to take place during a major festival. Well, they had just celebrated earlier that evening. They had celebrated the Passover meal. And of course, the Feast of Unleavened Bread had just begun and would continue for the next several days. So they disregarded that law. Thirdly, when it was, when it was legal to conduct a capital case, well, they needed to allow an entire day was supposed to elapse between when they uh, arrived at the conviction and then they announced the sentencing. Well, we'll see the violation of this uh, later, but we note that the conviction, the sentencing, and even the carrying out of that sentence really all occurred with, uh, with an, an about 12 hours or maybe just a little over 12 hours. You think from 1 to, to noon, right? When Jesus was um, uh, put to death on the cross. And so, again, they violated their own laws. They also uh, would ask Jesus during this trial to incriminate himself, which again was against the law. And of course, the whole arrest and the trial was secured due to a bribe that the religious leaders paid to Judas to betray Jesus. So from beginning to end, this trial was a sham and a violation of their own laws. And of course, the irony in all this is that those who prided themselves on adhering closely to every detail of the law, will they easily cast the law aside when convenience and their own self-interests are at stake? And this is a, really a warning for, uh, for us as well, that, that legal, legalism all too frequently gives way to loopholism. Right? That if, you, if you're going to be legalistic, and there are some groups that are very legalistic about various things, well, they often find loopholes to get, away, to get around some of those legalistic uh, traditions that they adhere to. And this is exactly what's happening here. And it's these self-righteous ones, as their hypocrisy, even in this, is now being revealed, it's these who will be now the supposedly the impartial jury in this trial. But a funny thing happened in their attempt to carry out this mockery of a trial and destroy Jesus. You see, in order to reach a conviction and send somebody to death, well, you actually need to have a charge to uh, assert, uh, apply against them. And the prosecutors of the case had absolutely nothing. You see, Jesus had lived among them a perfect and, and sinless life. And yes, though he clashed against their traditions, well, he had fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God's law. Jesus had done nothing wrong, certainly nothing worthy of death. And so not having any legitimate charge to bring against him, they did the next best, best, uh, the next best thing. They sought false witnesses to bring false charges against Jesus. But again, even this was a disaster. Verse 59, <clears throat> Now when the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. Right? Note the repeated emphasis on 
found none. Nothing. They couldn't even find false witnesses to give false testimony that would stick. They found nothing with which to charge Jesus. It seems as though the only crime that had been committed was the circus of a court hearing and its assault on justice. Now the law of God required that for capital cases that there must be at least two witnesses whose testimonies were in agreement with one another. Uh, Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 says this, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. And so the way they would do this is that the first witness would come and state their case before the judge, the jury, and the defendant, but in the absence of the other witnesses. And then they would have the next witness come in, and he would give public testimony of what he saw. Well, these two testimonies had to agree. right? And even if there was a minor discrepancy, their testimony would be thrown out. What it appears that in this trial of Jesus, the Sanhedrin at least stuck to this part of the law, because as witness after witness was dismissed, because seemingly their testimony didn't agree. And when they couldn't find any factual testimony again against Jesus, they went out and, and likely they hired, through more bribes, false witnesses. That is, people who would be willing to lie for a price. Again, this was another violation of the law, to knowingly allow false testimony in the court. But obviously, truth among them was as absent as justice. But again, even these false witnesses, we see that their hatred-induced incompetence is revealed and that they can't even get their own false witnesses to agree. And Mark uh, points this out. Mark 14, verse 56 tells us that, that the testimony, even of the false witnesses, didn't agree. Now you would think, Right? If you're going to go through the trouble to, to go out and to hire somebody to lie in court and to hire a couple people, that you're going to be sure that witness A is going to say the same thing as witness B and that their stories are going to match up. But even in this, they failed and brought a shameful embarrassment to them. This high court of the Jews was more like a circus sideshow with a bunch of clowns in charge than a court of law. Indeed, it would be laughable if it weren't such an injustice. But we do have to give them this. They were persistent. As we see at the end of verse 60, uh, at the end of verse 60, but at last, two false witnesses came forward. Right? Finally, they, they get a breakthrough. Even though it's false testimony, well, it actually ends up relating to something that Jesus actually said. At least, sort of. So look at verse 61. <clears throat> this is their testimony. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And this goes back to something Jesus said much earlier in his ministry, uh, after Jesus had cleansed the temple on a previous occasion, we read uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, John chapter 2, verses 18, 
So the, G- the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, to destroy the temple, or to even threaten to destroy the temple, was a capital offense. And that was due in particular because uh, an assault on the temple was considered to be an assault on God himself, since the temple was the symbolic dwelling place of God in the midst of the people. And so they're accusing Jesus of threatening God. But listen closely once again. First to verse 61 in Matthew 26. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And now listen closely to what Jesus actually said in John 2 verse 19. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You notice the difference? There are two things here. First, they distort what Jesus said. The false testimony says that Jesus claimed that he would destroy the temple, but Jesus claimed no such thing. He said, using an implied kind of conditional command, if you, that is, the Jews, if you would destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. And so they were twisting Jesus' words to say something that he didn't say. And secondly, they misunderstood, of course, the meaning of Jesus' words altogether. Because Jesus in John 2 wasn't speaking about the temple building at all. But rather was referring to himself. As the disciples would later catch on in John 2 verse 20, Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. See, indeed, the the Jews would destroy the temple. That is, they would destroy Jesus. And in three days, he would be raised up by the power of God. And so all the way back in John chapter 2, Jesus is actually referring to what is now soon to happen. That he will be put to death, but then he will be raised up again on the third day. But these religious leaders didn't have the ears to hear the truth. They only heard what they wanted to hear. Now one other note here to show just how much of a farce this trial was. Again, Mark uh, chapter 14, verse 59, the, the parallel account to this, tells us that, again, not even these two false witnesses uh, uh, charging Jesus with the, that he's going to destroy the temple, not even these two could fully agree. And so really the whole thing was a charade of justice. But you see, precious time was ticking away. And this trial was seemingly going nowhere. And so perhaps feeling desperate and and angry and frustrated with the gridlock, the high priest Caiaphas now comes forward. Now you see, the high priest was the one presiding over the Sanhedrin, and in this case he would serve as the judge. 
But again, seeing how this case was floundering and the opportunity to rid themselves of Jesus was slipping away, Caiaphas, violating all rules of propriety and appearance as an impartial judge, rises from his seat and he begins to take on the role of the prosecutor as he begins to question Jesus. And even though the previous testimony was greatly flawed, of course it was the only thing that they had to go on, so he pressed Jesus and sought to trap Jesus in his own words and and to incriminate himself. Verse 62, Do you uh, answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. Now we may wonder why the high priest would be so surprised that Jesus wouldn't answer. Why would he expect Jesus to answer charges that they all knew were false? Jesus doesn't respond at all. He stands silent before the lying false witnesses. But even this silence served a purpose. Now the law required a response to accusations. But, of course, that's assuming that there was some validity to the charges. And Jesus' lack of response indicates his summation that there were no valid accusations to even respond to. In fact, again, the testimony didn't even agree. If his words were previously distorted in order to make this false charge against him, what's keeping any response he now makes from also being distorted and used against him? And certainly if this had been a fair and just trial, Jesus' silence would have been uh, brought a charge of contempt. But since it was a circus, he remained silent. Here he was seemingly following the wisdom of Solomon, Proverbs 26. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Jesus wouldn't take part in this charade. But his silence related to another matter also. Jesus' silence here is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Again, even this this little detail about Jesus being silent before his false accusers, reminding us that Jesus does nothing outside the will and the purpose of God, the Father that he has set before him to walk in. Indeed, he shows here that same resolve he did back in the Garden of Gethsemane when he faced with that temptation to forego the cup that his father had given him. Jesus knows an injustice is being done. And yet he also knows that this injustice is a part of the humiliation that he must endure for his people. Jesus suffered the injustice so that we might have his mercy. But Jesus' silence seemed to only annoy Caiaphas further. And so, so you can just imagine Caiaphas just is, is, is bursting 
almost in a, in a rage. And then he finally puts forth the question. Right? The question that they had wondered about from the very beginning when Jesus first appeared in public. This is the question that will finally put Jesus on the spot and one which he must answer. In fact, Caiaphas will compel him to answer. Verse 63, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Clearly and plainly, he asked Jesus if he is the promised Christ, the Messiah. Is he the Son of God? Now, Jesus had never given a direct response to this question other than to the Samaritan woman uh, at the well. But anybody else he asked, he never gave a direct response. You see, because it wasn't the time for him to be revealed. But now, now is the time. And of course now, he's under oath. And Jesus says the true Son of God is unable to lie. And again, with the weight of being under oath, he must now respond. And so he says in verse 64, It is as you said. And for a moment, you could imagine it being so quiet that you could hear a pin drop in that room. Jesus, unequivocally, undeniably, and publicly makes it known that He truly is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then taking advantage of that astonished silence, Jesus is quick to add the implication of this in, in verse 64. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And here Jesus is bringing together a prophecy of, of Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, which speaks of the coming of the divine Son of Man in this power and glory, as well as Psalm 110. Where we see the Messiah reigning as king and judge of all the earth. And thus he affirms that one day the tables will be turned on these abusers of justice. Because he is the Son of Man who will come in glory at the right hand of power. That is a euphemism for, the, for God Almighty. And He will come in the glory of the clouds. And when this occurs, the day of judgment will be upon them. And that He will be the righteous judge. And that they will be the defendants. They will be the defendants in a capital trial. That will have everlasting implications. And this charade of justice that is taking place now will surely be recompensed on that day. And these abusers of justice will receive their due on that last great day. So this is a warning to them. This is who I am, Jesus says. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And I will come again in glory and power. And I will sit in judgment over you. Jesus didn't say much before his accusers. But when he did speak, it was with authority, conviction, boldness, and severity. The truth has been revealed, and now this kangaroo court stands accused. So, how will they respond? 
Are they softened in their hatred and do they seek repentance? Do they humble themselves before the Lord's anointed, God's own beloved Son? Well, we would hope. But no, they only further harden their hearts in guilt and shame. Verse 65, the high priest tore his clothes saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. The dramatic reaction of the high priest dispels any thought of repentance and sorrow for their sin. They no longer need witnesses now, which certainly probably was a relief to them because of the disaster that it was. Because in Caiaphas' understanding, they have all become the witness now to Jesus' blasphemy. Now blasphemy is, is a particular sin. It's to dishonor God and diminish His majesty in the name of God in particular. But, but in order to commit blasphemy, you must invoke the holy name of God. But Jesus didn't do that here. He claimed to be the Son of God, but didn't even mention the name of God. So even this charge is ultimately a false charge. And instead of heeding the truth of Jesus' confession, they take offense that this common man, this man who was so easily betrayed and disgraced by one of his own disciples, who was arrested and who stands before them as seemingly an ordinary man, they take offense that he claimed for himself the honor and the dignity of being God's anointed, even God's own son. It was too overwhelming for this bunch of hypocrites. And they all, the judge and the jury, unanimously pronounced their verdict guilty of blasphemy and thus deserving of death. Again, it's a little ironic that they, they couldn't condemn him with lies and false testimonies, but it was the truth. The truth spoken by Jesus about who he truly was that brought condemnation to him in their eyes. They would have been happy with the conviction based on lies. But they convict based on the truth that Jesus spoke. The truth that even they denied. And yet they still used it against him. But then it gets worse. The wicked bitterness and the anger and the resentment that these religious leaders have so diligently tried to conceal. And for some, for the last uh, almost three years, have been trying to conceal their rage and their anger and their hatred toward Jesus. They always had this, this air about them. They wanted to appear honorable in the midst of the people. And before the people. But now it all seems to just burst forth. And they abuse and humiliate and mock Jesus. This man who dared to speak the truth. Verses 68 and 67. They're spitting at Jesus. Spitting on him. It's, it's an action that shows contempt and hatred and, and vileness and disgust. 
And Luke notes that they blindfolded him and then they, they beat him with punches and they slapped him when he's unable to see what's coming at him. So there's no way for him to defend himself. And then they mock him as they, as they smack him and punch him, telling him, challenging him to prophesy. If you're the Christ, if you're truly the Son of God, well then prophesy. Tell us, blind man, who hit you? These men who prided themselves at being the cultural elite and very prim and proper in many respects, they resort to behavior that isn't worthy of a beast. Friends, this truly was the greatest violation of justice that has ever been and ever shall be. And beloved of God, it was all on our account as Jesus endured this for us. Of course, we know that this was just the beginning of His physical humiliation that He would receive on our account. But consider this. When Jesus was spat upon, it was meant for us. Because of the vileness of our sin. When Jesus was punched and slapped, it was because of our fallen sinfulness and and the sins which we commit that flows from our sin nature. All that Jesus endured here, the injustice and the abuse, was all that we deserved because of our sin. Even as the prophet Isaiah foretells in Isaiah 53, And he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And all this occurred that by his scourging we might be healed. And of course this is even more amazing to us. That all this had to happen. All this injustice, all this abuse had to happen so that through the suffering and death of Jesus, we might be healed. So that we might be reconciled to God and forgiven by Him. That we would receive healing from both the spiritual and emotional scars of the sin that enslaves us. And friends, that is what the Gospel offers That is what the gospel offers to those who will, by the power of His Spirit, who will humble themselves, healing from those wounds and those curses of sin. If we would even now turn and repent of our sins and call upon Christ alone for salvation. Friends, I tell you today that even in the midst of that horrendous injustice that Jesus endures here, Jesus spoke the truth. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. And one day, He will return to judge the living and the dead. He will judge... And He will once and for all make a fair and just distinction between those who trust in Him and those who have rejected and who have despised His name. Truly beloved, may you all be covered by His grace and mercy 
on that day and that it would all be to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God in heaven, Father, we just praise you and thank you for this reminder which really ought to pierce our hearts as we catch here just a glimpse of this, the beginning of what Jesus, your beloved Son and our Savior, endured for us. That He suffered this injustice at the hands of wicked men. And Lord, sometimes we cry out for justice all too flippantly. And that truly, if you would grant justice, we know what true justice would mean. That our sin would be judged. That we would endure your wrath and your curse. Because of how we have sinned against you and rebelled against you. But praise God for Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you, Father, that you sent your Son, that he willingly came to lay down his life and to endure these horrible things for us so that our sins can be washed and cleansed, so that we can be free from your just and holy wrath, that we can be free from condemnation as we look to you for our salvation and embrace your forgiveness and mercy and standing in your glorious presence forever and ever. Lord, straight justice would not have given us that. But your grace and your mercy have secured it for us. And so we just praise you that you are a holy and righteous God. And we do think of the enemies, your enemies out there in the world. Maybe we face them at different times. And we do face them. We think of other Christians, other believers in other parts of the world where they are persecuted, where they face these, these courts that abuse justice, that seek to silence the gospel. Lord, we know that you will bring these wicked abusers of justice, that you will bring them to justice on that last great day. But in the midst of that, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen your people, that you would strengthen us as we face these things in our lives, that we would continue to walk in truth and righteousness, that we would rest holy in your grace and rest holy in the arms of our Savior Jesus who leads us and guides us through as we follow in his steps. And so we pray, Father, that you would apply these truths to our hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.